We completed our series on church leadership the last time uh, I spoke, and so I thought we would start a new series and take a trip through the Bible, which will probably last several months. We won't be in any hurry, for which Frank is very grateful. We'll take our time and meditate as much as possible upon the Bible as a whole. You know, if, if you're raised, uh, if, if you've been a member of the Lord's Church or you were reared as a child in, in the Church of Christ, you received uh, the Bible generally piecemeal, one class after another. And so you have a lot of slices, a lot of bits and pieces. And that's not the same as fitting it all together and seeing the flow of the entire Bible. So it's, it's a healthy study for us to try to do that, although obviously... You can't touch upon every detail, but you can kind of get a flow, a, a feel for the whole Bible by moving through it in a sequential order and thinking through how it all fits together. Before we do that, stop and think for just a moment how critical the Bible is. You know, we can know that God exists by the things that are made, but... And there's a few things about God that you can surmise from the created order. He's obviously omnipotent, for example. But there's a lot about God that you just can't know by looking around at the incredible creation. It was necessary for him to communicate to us in a human language. And while... A lot of that was done orally. It needed to be committed to writing so that all people could have access to it throughout 6,000 years of human history. What other way would you do that? And that's what he did. He selected individuals that had um, certain attributes, although they were not, none of them were perfect. But he so governed or guided them. Do you remember how Peter puts that? Peter has two great passages on that concept in what 1 Peter 1 and 2 Peter 1. Talks about taking holy men of God and moving them. That word move refers to, uh, it's the same, it's a nautical term. It's the same concept as the wind moving uh, a ship. A ship is still operating on its own, but it's, it's receiving its uh, impetus, its power uh, from an external source. And so God uh, moved these uh, men of old, carried them along, uh, the and he used the Holy Spirit to do that. And their finished product, even though you can see distinctions between the writers in terms of their literary style, their vocabulary, uh, their experiences that they were allowed to incorporate and other things, they, they differ. And yet they were all clearly governed and guided so that when they finished writing, what they had written was what God wanted written. Remember how uh, Paul puts that in 1 Corinthians 2 and how uh, these spiritual concepts were committed to spiritual words. And therefore all people on the planet, if they want it, the Bible's been translated into uh, more languages than any other book. And uh, there are other ways to access the Word of God, even if you know, you're in a place where it's not immediately accessible. So notice what would happen. What, what shape would America be in 
if we did not have the Bible. And it's not going to be that difficult for us to conceptualize that because fewer and fewer people are interested in the Bible. And you can see what's happening. Uh, why would children think that it would be wrong to lie? Why would they think it would be wrong to steal, to go into a store and slip something in their pocket unless they've been taught that that's not appropriate behavior, that it's, it's sinful? And it seems to me that those parents that are trying to teach some of those things in, in no doubt many locations here in our country, it's not tied to God. It's just they you know, probably tell them, don't do that. You'll get arrested and go to jail or something like that. They don't give them the foundational motivation that there's a God and he's given us information, directions, and we've got to understand all this information and apply it to our lives. So... Any society that does not have the mind of God informing it regarding proper moral uh, behavior is going to be a jungle, a moral jungle. And uh, sadly, as I said, we're seeing more and more of that in our own society. But you see, that makes the Bible absolutely critical. It is the ultimate anchor for all of us. And we wouldn't know about crucifixion or the resurrection or the Lord's Supper and a host of other things. It's the only means by which we can get a proper framework out of which to live our lives and to approach life. So we ought to ever keep that before us. And if we don't keep tying ourselves back into the Bible, that will leave us more vulnerable to behaving in ways that are unacceptable to God and that are more in line with our own personal subjective feelings on a particular matter. And uh, what people in the world do not think that what they decide to do and how they choose to live is the right way. Uh, every way is right in a man's own eyes. Everybody thinks they're doing fine. We ask everybody in America, are you going to go to heaven? Uh, those who believe that there will be a heaven, the vast majority, perhaps all of them, would say, yeah, I think I am. Well, part of the problem there is they're not going back and filling their thoughts and their thinking with God as he presents himself. So notice how then God chose to commence his communication to the human race. Look at the first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God do you not see that that sets the Bible apart from all other books, all books that are invented by mere humans? Because uh, the Bible represents itself as being a portion, no doubt a very small portion, of the mind of God. And the Bible consistently depicts God in a completely different way than all of the gods that have been conjured by human beings throughout human history. No, the God of the Bible is infinite in all of its attributes, so he possesses all of his attributes to a perfect degree. So God is perfect in love and compassion and benevolence. He's perfect in justice. He's perfect in wrath. All of the attributes of God he possesses infinitely. No human being does. And all the gods that humans have invented are uh, flawed 
and reflect many of the attributes of those who invented them. The Bible stands apart from all other books in that the depiction of God is what the human heart would hope for. If there is a God, this is the God that you would want to exist. Because he's perfect in every way. The Bible consistently presents himself that way. And in many ways, that's kind of a summary of the Bible. In the beginning, God. The Bible is about God. Who he is. And therefore, who we are. And what he expects of us. In fact, may I suggest to you that you can, you can condense and capsule the entire Bible in terms of two basic strands that run through the whole thing, all 66 books. First of all, who is God? Uh, what has he done for us? That, that emanates out of who he is. The fact that he cares for us and loves us and, is, and uh, put together a plan in eternity to be worked out through thousands of years of human history and brought to culmination, that's all about who God is. And that is no doubt the theme of the Bible. The scheme of redemption. There's the golden thread that runs through the entire Bible. Maybe a scarlet thread. But then notice that the, the other feature of the Bible, and the one which, as a matter of fact, dominates uh, the bulk of the contents. You know, if you take all 66 books and try to categorize these two topics, clearly the bulk of it has to do with this second topic. And that is, what is the appropriate response from the human race, given what God has, who he is and what he's done for us. So that's most of the Bible. And we start right out with the first human pair, and it tells us how they chose to react to God. It tells us what God did for them. But then most of the, the pages are taken up telling us, here's how they chose to live. And you look across the centuries, the millennia of human behavior, and it's not a pretty picture, is it? But notice that when God chose to communicate his will to us in written form and took about 1,600 years to do it, from 1,500 B.C. to about 100 A.D., and used three different human languages and used about 40 different human authors, that wasn't just kind of a haphazard, you know, little blips here and there, which is how you're struck by the Quran when you read it. It was all carefully orchestrated so that the completed product is what's necessary in order to enable us to get to heaven. I mean, that's what we need. And there's not anything else on the planet that will serve that purpose for us or provide uh, that uh, service. Do you see that? You know, we all need each other. As Christians, we lean on each other, we love each other, we pray for each other, we sorrow with each other. And uh, all of that is uh, uplifting and, and helps to buoy our spirits and make us more able to uh, weather the storms of life and function. But that is all true, and it's all very important, and that's what God wants the church to um, reflect. But um, that's not going to ultimately secure my soul where I can uh, survive life. Because even your own brethren can disappoint you and fail you 
your own mates can, your own children, your own parents. We're all flawed. So ultimately, we're all individually responsible for tying ourselves back in to that foundational platform on which we must stand in order to face life. So the importance of the Bible, the superiority of the Bible, the magnificence of the Bible, these, I realize that all of us understand this, and in, in the Lord's Church, we have emphasized it constantly. The religious world does so to a far lesser degree. They're more tied up in a lot of other things that propel them and to give them their, uh, their drive for being religious. They cannot be too deeply tied into Scripture, or they would not be affiliated with such widespread religious errors. Am I correct? So you and I need to ever keep before us that we will not make it in this life. We can't sit back and say, well, you know, God, I'm counting on you to get me through life. Well, I certainly want to do that, and I'm giving you the way to do it. Listen to his thinking. Listen to what he told you to do. And there's no way he can do that through his words. I'm not going to come in a still small voice or through um, some other form of communication that's mystical or something. A lot of people believe that that's the truth. Bible, if I understand it correctly, because that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. He's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. 2 Peter 1 3. And it is located in the receptacle of the Word of God. So, what an incredible book that we desperately need. You know, I thank God every day. Yes, thank Him for providing the blood of Christ by which we can be forgiven. But we would know anything about that if it wasn't for the fact that he gave us his word. Well, as you proceed then, in the beginning God created. Notice uh, that God chose first to communicate to the human race how the universe got here and how we all got here. So you read through that first chapter and you get the distinct impression that God just spoke the entire material, physical realm into existence in six literal days. Is that not the impression you get? You know, without any bias or listening to any of the scientists of our day or anything like that, just read it and you get that impression. Now, sometimes you can get an impression that's incorrect when you read the Bible and, and other books. But you look a little closer and see that this impression is appropriate because uh, eight times uh, in this chapter we have the refrain, and God said, you know, let there be light, or let this, let this come into existence, let this come, and it was so. So you, you get the impression that he orally spoke everything into existence. Uh, it took six days to do it. He could have done it in, you know, six seconds or 600 million years. God could do any of those. But what he clearly is communicating to us that he did is that he spoke it orally into existence in six days. Well... <clears throat> Some of our brethren have said, you know, well, this is um, a figurative language, uh, poetic, uh, mythopoeic, and uh, you, you can't hang your hat on that being a literal concept. But you look at the rest of the Bible, and you get the same impression in different types of uh, genre, literature. It's not poetic. For example, in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, verse 3, by faith we understand 
that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Well, that's pretty clear, is it not? And you remember when the Israelites were standing at the base of Mount Sinai receiving the Decalogue on that occasion, you remember one of those laws was that they were to observe Sabbath. And the rationale that is tied to that law is because they were told they were to work for the first six days of the week and then rest on that final day. And the rationale given is because God created the heavens, the earth, the seas, and all that's in them. That's pretty all-encompassing, isn't it? All-inclusive. And then ceased on the seventh. The Hebrew term translated rested means to cease. What about uh, Psalm 33, verse 6? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. What about Psalm 33, verse 9? For he spoke, and it was done. He commanded, and they stood fast. And read Psalm 148, verse 5. The Bible everywhere indicates that the general impression that we get reading Genesis chapter 1 is an accurate one. Uh, evolution say what it wants to say, and uh, the prevailing mentality of the scientific community, literally worldwide. Uh, but the fact that that's a large number of highfalutin, uh, highly degreed individuals doesn't mean that, that that's the truth. God's word is reliable and we can count on it to lead us directly. Look at verse 26 of the chapter. Do you remember how bringing creation week to a climax, at the pinnacle of that week, God created the first human beings. We are said, uh, told that they were made in God's image. Uh, that would merit uh, some time for you to take to sit down and think through what that means. In what way are we like God? Certainly not in terms of our physical bodies. Jesus, uh, God, uh, Jesus said God is spirit, John 4, 24. He also said a spirit hath not flesh and blood as you see me have. So we were not made in God's image physically in terms of our physical bodies. So what's he talking about? Well, he's talking about uh, spiritual and moral attributes, including our, our rationality, our capability to think and reason, which uh, uh, surpasses the animal kingdom. And the fact that uh, we are free moral agents. Notice that animals are not. Uh, historically, we refer to animal behavior as instinct. It's like it's programmed or wired into them. Not so with humans. Now, you can choose to go anywhere you want, do anything you want, and behave in any fashion you choose. That's part of uh, being created in the image of God. And there are other attributes as well that we won't take the time to look at. A lot of that's on our website if you're interested. But notice when you, uh, the text says then, not only were they created in God's image, but male and female created he them. I'm in correspondence with uh, a fellow out in, I think it's Culver City, California. He's been in correspondence with an elder out there in a congregation where they have expanded roles uh, for women in terms of leading in the assembly. And uh, it's just astounding to me how this elder reasons that, in fact, in his last email, he said, 
speaking to this brother who's turned to me and asked me to get involved in it. He said, you, 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 you were looking at this subject through the lens of 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 14, and 1 Timothy 2. I tend to look at it more through the lens of, and then he mentioned some passages like Galatians 3.28, uh, for in Christ there's neither male nor female passages along that line. It's astounding to me that, number one, that a person would pit the Bible against itself. You know, you take these passages, but I kind of go with these. How respectful is that to God's word? That's like saying, okay, you believe you're saved by faith. I believe you're saved at the point of baptism, so we'll just go our separate ways and feel no compulsion to harmonize Scripture since God does not contradict himself but is consistent in his teaching and thinking. Is he not? I'm also amazed that this elder would miss the glaring indications beginning here in Genesis 1 and 2 and extending throughout the rest of the Bible. For example, when you turn the page to chapter 2, you find not a second account of creation, as uh, critics of the Bible have alleged, but simply an expansion on the sixth day of creation, where he expands and gives us more detail about the creation of the first human beings. And we find out that, as a matter of fact, God created the male first. So, so what? Well, there's something going on there. Why didn't he create the woman first? Or why didn't he create male and female simultaneous? He didn't do that. Well, are we to just surmise that because he created the male first, that that somehow means something? No, we just go over to 1 Timothy 2 where Paul refers to that very thing as justification for limiting women in leadership roles in the church. 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15. But surely if you are unbiased and haven't studied out the subject, when you come to Genesis chapter 2 and you see that God created the man, and didn't create the woman at that point. You would surely stop and scratch your head and say, I wonder why he did that. And we're told that he created him out of the dust of the ground. Men, men were made out of dirt. We just well admit that. Of course, you know, little boys love to play in the dirt. Girls typically don't. And notice verse 7 of chapter 2. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. He became a living soul. So he fashioned his physical body out of the dust of the ground. But he placed within him a spirit that only God can place within a physical body at conception. And then you continue to read in chapter 2, and uh, Adam's alive, he's conscious, he's uh, walking around, he's observing the created order. There are some things that take place there, including the naming of animal, uh, general animal categories, and uh, uh, God even... Um, gives him instruction about uh, not only tending the garden, agricultural activity, but a restriction on the consuming of the fruit of one of those trees. Notice the woman's not there. She, she's not alive. She does not exist. So he's giving spiritual information to Adam. Now, how's Eve, when she comes into existence, how's she going to learn about that? 
Well, I'm convinced that the implication here is that the male is to be the spiritual leader in the home as well. He has a responsibility on his shoulders to inform his family. That's ultimately where the buck stops on that. Now notice that God then twice makes this statement. But it's not good for you to be alone. I think there's more to that statement than we might initially think in just encountering it for the first time. Oh, you know, he's lonely, he needs somebody with him. No, that's not what this is about. Something deeper going on here. As if, even though God creates everything perfect, you know, the first trees were perfect. The first male body was perfect. But God knew what his intention was. And it's clear that his intention was that male and female not only differ physically, but they differ beyond the physical in other ways that made the man inadequate without her. That's what's going on here. It's not good for you to be by yourself. Well, why didn't he just create him another man then, a friend? They go fishing and hunting and do all that. That's not the kind of loneliness or companionship that, that was needed. And so you remember God put him to sleep and performed. There's your first anesthesia in history. And he also performed human history's first surgery. Made an incision on his side, removed a portion of his body, resealed the incision. And then out of the portion that he removed, created a female. Which brings us to another question. Why did he do, do it that way? Why didn't he just say, okay, you need somebody... And make her out of the dust of the ground. Why did he take her out of the man? I'm telling you, God did that deliberately to communicate the interrelationship of gender. And how God wants them to relate to each other. I know that's true because Paul states that in 1 Corinthians 11. He says the, the woman, the man was not taken out of the woman. The woman was taken out of the man. And he gives that in that chapter as the rationale for there being restrictions on female leadership in worship, specifically these women who possessed miraculous abilities. Think about that. Well, why would God give them miraculous abilities and then not let them use it? Well, who said they couldn't use it? They just couldn't use it in the assembly, exercising leadership over the male. That's very different. I don't understand why Christendom is, you know, this didn't used to be a problem even in Christendom. But with the feminist movement that arose in the 60s, that's when it really started. Cut a wide swath across our culture. Gave rise, by the way, to the homosexual movement. Came right out of that. The feminist movement um, has taken its toll on Christendom and even the Lord's Church. And you, you will find members of the Lord's Church across this country in liberal churches and they have uh, swallowed hook, line, and sinker. The, feminine, the same arguments that the secular humanistic feminists use to try to advance their, their cause. And we've talked about this in the past. You know, I don't have a bit of problem with uh, a woman fulfilling any role that God authorizes her to fulfill. Not one bit. 
I know that there are many women that can teach and preach better than I can, that can lead singing better than I can, a lot of other things. But you cannot read the Bible and take it seriously and walk away without understanding, wow, this, this is not a cultural issue. That's what they want to say. Uh, you're just raising a culture where that was the case. God's not talking about culture. Are you talking about garden culture? We're talking about creation, how God made them. And you keep reading in this, in this text and uh, after he creates the woman, he brings her to the man. And then Adam commits what scripture throughout the rest of the Old Testament indicates is an, an act of authority and leadership. And that is the right to name. He names her twice here and in chapter 3. And even says, look at verse uh, 23, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Yeah, so, well again, he's showing this interrelationship that goes uh, deeper than merely surface relationship. It's, uh, it's the way that gender is intended to function in relation to the other gender. This is deep stuff going on here. And as usual, God says it briefly, succinctly, and you'll miss it if you don't sit down and think and pay attention. God's not just rehearsing stuff and doing things haphazardly. But it's very deliberate, very methodical, very specific. That was in verse 24 that he said that. And do you remember Jesus in Matthew 19 quoted that verse? And there he was discussing... He was answering a question posed in Matthew 19.3. Can we divorce our wives for any reason? You know, at a whim, at our will. And Jesus said, have you not read Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24? What do those have to do with divorce? Well, because God intended those two to marry and to be together. And so after quoting that, Jesus adds his own inspired commentary. What therefore God has joined together, men don't have a right to take apart, break it up. He then proceeds to explain, except in one situation, one circumstance, verse 9. But he goes back to creation. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't even quote something from uh, the law of Moses, like Deuteronomy 24, which they bring up, the bill of divorce. He didn't go there to answer the question. He goes to Genesis 1 and 2, creation, male and female. Here's how they are to interrelate to each other. That's an incredible uh, beginning to the Bible. You know, the, the word Genesis means beginning, and this book gives us the beginning of a lot of things. Beginning of the universe we have seen, uh, the beginning of the concept of a week comes right out of the Bible. The beginning of uh, the existence of human beings. The beginning of marriage and the home. And notice, here's the rest of the world. And they don't, they're not interested in the Bible. So what is their concept of why we're here, how we got here, what we're here for? Uh, how, does, how is the human race to function? We're already getting 
a clear, stable framework out of which we are in a position to function. I didn't say anything about how homosexuality has become rampant in our civilization and uh, to raise a finger of uh, protest or disagreement, you are immediately uh, hailed as racist, which doesn't make any sense, but you know we're all lumped in there together. You're racist, you're homophobic, and, and even worse, you know, you're unchristian, you're unloving, and just on and on and on it goes. Well, the Bible has more to say against homosexuality than it has to say about the importance and necessity of the Lord's Supper. And you don't have to have a negative laid upon that if you'll just look at creation. When God said, here's a man and here's a woman, he created gender. He didn't create two men and two women. He should have done so very quickly. Once he introduced gender, male and female, if they were not intended to be the foundation of civilization and, and the, the human race and defined as the home, then he very quickly after that should have created another man and woman for them to pair off. And nor is polygamy clearly the ideal of God. He didn't create two, three, four, five women for Adam. That's all against the created order, which we get right here at the very beginning in the garden. It's absolutely astounding if we care to be guided and governed by God's thinking. Well, we didn't get very far, but uh, we'll plow forward in uh, our next session together. If you have uh, not obeyed the gospel through faith, repentance, confession, and baptism, we give you that opportunity to do so. If as a member of the Lord's Church, you need to come before this group and make uh, changes spiritually before the church, then you can do that as well. Let's stand and sing this hymn together. trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the sky, but his smile quickly drives it away. Not a doubt nor a fear, not a sigh nor a Trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. Then in fellowship sweet, we will sit and his feet, or will walk by his side in the way.
says we will do, where he sends we will go, never fear, only trust and obey, trust and obey, for there's no to trust and obey. You may be seated. For those who were not able to partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, if you'll come to the front two pews, you'll be served. Let us sing uh, number 393 while we do that. Number 393. After this song, you'll be served. Let's sing verses two and three. Oft we, oh, sorry. May we keep in memory all that thou hast said. May we truly worship as we
Thank you, Brother Miller, for the lesson. Can't wait to hear the next part of that. Let's, uh, let's stand and sing number 113. Number 113. After this, we'll be dismissed in prayer. Let's sing. I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. I need thee, oh, I need thee. Ah. Uh...